Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. But we're so happy to uh, have uh, these terrific people here tonight. We know about Catherine Burrell, uh, writer, producer, radio personality, awesome woman galore. Okay, and we're so happy that she will be um, here with uh, Claudia Day, uh, writer, award-winning playwright, international phenomenon. Let's <laughs> say that. She's amazing. I want to read this quote um, from Lauren uh, Lauren Groff, um, who's an incredible writer, uh, about her book Heartbreaker. Heartbreaker is a dark star of, of a book, glittering with mordant humor and astonishing seductive strangeness and grace. I'm a giant fan of Day's wild brain. What I'm most happy about, and I couldn't believe, I was thrilled to hear this. So you're a horror screen actress, a horror mover actress. Is that right? Were you, the, were you like the killer or were you like the screaming woman? Yes, come on in. Come on out. Come on out. Did, <laughs> did you like stab people or were you like screaming and running? I was like alone in the woods and there was this kind of amphibious creature that I was intrigued by and kind of in love by and love with but also like threatened by. Uh-huh. Like the shape of water. Were you in the shape of water? It was kind of, <laughs> It was 6 years before the shape of water. Oh, wow. So you can hold your breath, I'm assuming, underwater. But it was, like, silent, too. I basically, like, looked really worried and tired walking through the woods while being, like, stalked by this creature. Oh. (laughs) And then the creature comes to my cabin. And now you know why she has this wild brain, as Lauren Groff says. So please welcome Claudia and Catherine. (laughs) 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 Woo! Talk about the like. Did I screw the creature? The creature sex. Thank you, Noel and um, Skylight. This room is so beautiful. Um, and my comrade Catherine, who's easily the most fascinating person on earth to text with. But now this is our like introduction to each other as humans. She's horrible so. to talk to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> great over text. Um, okay, so I'm going to read for five minutes. Can you guys hear me okay? Okay, great. I partially lost my hearing on the plane, which we'll get into. So I can hear over here, but not over here. It's not just one of those boring, like, you lost your hearing on the plane, like the way we all lose our hearing on oh, the plane stories. Yeah, no, it's like a profound... It goes- <laughs> Don't worry, we'll get it. It becomes we'll existential it. cool. pretty quickly. Um, okay, so I'm going to read for about five minutes from the book. The book is called Heartbreaker, uh, and it starts with Billie Jean Fontaine bolts barefoot from her bungalow and disappears into the cold October darkness. And the story is told in three voices by those who are left behind, by her daughter, Pony, her dog, Jenna Rollins, and by this kind of mysterious, watchful boy in the territory called Supernatural. And the year is 1985. 
The territory is the remains of a cult in the far, far north. Um, the only other name you have to remember in this excerpt is the heavy. The heavy is the name of Billy's husband. Okay, so I'm going to have a sip of water, and then I'm going to read. You could sing or something. Okay, oh God, <laughs> ruin the evening. Um, okay. I thought I'd read from the dog section. So here's Jenna Rollins, who we know by this point, she's never barked. She's too old to be alive. She's an assassin. She's a lesbian. <laughs> Here she is looking back. You and the heavy had that party. This was five years ago, and the whole territory came out for the party. I was never a dog's dog. The dogs were in the yard, chasing each other in circles, climbing each other's backs, and barking into each other's mouths, and then running for no reason at all. What is play chasing? Something I will never understand. I was much more interested in your stocking legs. You had stockings with a shimmer in them, black seams up the back. You took them out of the package just for that night. I watched you roll them up your legs. It took almost 10 minutes. You spent an hour with toilet paper wound between your fingers and toes, red nails held up in the air, drying. You spent the day behind a clay mask so your skin would be moist when people came in and put their faces against your face. It's aspiration that keeps you young, you said to me, gluing rhinestones around your eyes. Wanting, wanting to be something, wanting to go somewhere. Even wanting a different nose, different legs is a kind of aspiration. Even vanity is aspiration. But when you see those things you want are not going to happen for you, you enter the state past aspiration. The striving stops. Everyone thinks it's freedom to be past aspiration, past striving, but it's not. It's defeat. It's when your face starts to fall. Striving is anti-gravity. Then you took a roll of duct tape and plied a silver band to your hairline, holding back a quarter inch of your face. You studied yourself in the mirror. In a vast and prolonged way, you stood there and took in your image, the long hair, your perfume smudged beneath it, the lean neck, the lustrous mouth slightly parted, the fight of your jaw, all that you've dreamed and had to conceal, the dark, shy eyes, love flickering through them, and your daughter, one floor below, how your only wish was that her life would supersede your own. Then you said to me, youth, Tell me, why would I ever go back there? Efficiently, you pulled the duct tape from your face, and to it returned time. When you were finally dressed, you came down the stairs, and surveying you, the heavy took your portrait, then kissed you hard on the lips, and rubbed his hand over your ass, and then the small of your back, and then over your ass again, just before the doorbell first chimed. He would take you later, twice. Hev, short for heaven, you would say. Heaven. Every table was covered in food and bowls full of cigarettes, platters everywhere. Even the top of the television had a platter on it. Glasses and bottles were lined up on the bar. There was a punch bowl with cherries floating in it. 
pony had covered the basement floor in old mattresses, and all of the children were jumping and doing somersaults. One boy lost a tooth. One girl collided with another girl and briefly knocked her out. When they were hurt, no one told their parents. One girl peed in her dress, and two boys were having so much fun they started to cry uncontrollably and then fell asleep in a corner. The girl who peed in her dress went upstairs and without anyone noticing, took a dress of ponies and then hid her own dress in Pony's drawer. When you found the wet dress a few days later, the overwhelming smell of urine, you stroked Pony's head and told her never to feel ashamed. It felt so good. She didn't even tell you Lana's wet dress was identical to her dress, but not her dress. I knew how good it felt. You stroked my head all the time. Who needs to bark? Nothing like this had ever happened before in the territory. The people gathered to mourn the departed or to burn things, but never for a house party. It was the month of March. At last, winter was loosening its death grip. The days were getting longer. The people could aim their faces at the sun. The ground underfoot was softening. Soon the dead would go into it and the dark heads of new flowers would rise. The people felt a heat build in their bodies. They needed pleasure. A natural rule breaker, a woman from elsewhere, you were the only one who could have set off this kind of release. Five couples had sex in the tool shed and a few people had their way with themselves on our bathroom floor, peanuts scattered everywhere. And there was one group thing later in the night under the badminton net, four women, three men. And from that group, a single woman with a painful looking ponytail and a chipped front tooth went on with two men in a truck bed. Now you tell me, who are the dogs? Thank you. We're Don, Don, it's you. You guys remember that Don was gonna play, right? That's the introduction for Don. Really lucky to have him. He really is in one of the greatest, most classic Canadian bands that we ever got to have in our country. <laughs> Here he is.
just a sinner I am told be your fire when you're cold make you happy when you're sad make you good when you are bad I'm not a human I'm a dove I'm your conscience I am love all, all, all I really need is to know that you Do you want him to come back up here? He's going to come and sit. Okay, good. Oh, yeah, sit in front of us. Be, fr be the friendly face she needs, <laughs> as opposed to all these other unfriendly faces. Um, you are Canadian, so I have, and I'm Canadian, but I've lived in America for long enough to know that it's really important to hype things that are great, and Canadians will never do it for themselves mm -hmm. because we're constantly apologizing for being alive. Um, <laughs> and and uh, so, this book, uh, it's not a hyperbole that it was one of the best books I read all year. Um, I, I kept hearing about it for, through other Canadian friends and author, our friend Sheila Hetty, who wrote another one of my favorite books of the year, Motherhood. She was just like, you're going to freak out when you read it. And um, whenever someone tells me a reaction I'm going to have to something, I'm like, I'm not going to have that reaction. So I started reading Claudia's book, and I'm like, oh, all right. And immediately I there's um, such a sensuality to this book there's such an embodiment uh, to this book it's one of these things that comes out of somebody and you're like oh every single scene every character is so perfectly rendered um, it's incredible and uh, anyway so I was like I'm gonna switch from reading the, the, the paper version the hardcover to uh, the audiobook because I wanted to hear your voice in my head um, because I wanted to have that sort of that intimacy with you uh, as I was taking it in. And um, there's a point about a quarter before you finish. And because the problem with an audiobook is you don't have it in your hands, so you don't know where you're at. And there is, and I'm, I'm not gonna tell you the secret of the book, but the secret of the book comes out. And I was cleaning the house nervously because the tensions were rising in the book and the stakes were getting higher and I had fallen in love with all these characters and I'm like, don't, don't hurt my characters, you're about to hurt one of them really badly. And then you do. And I stopped and I thought I was gonna be sick in my bedroom. Um, and I was like, you're a psychopath. Like, you are a Canadian, like all Canadians, we all look wholesome and sweet, we have nice skin, but you're a crazy person and you've been parading as a normal person for all of these years in Toronto. And then luckily it wasn't the end of the book. There was still another quarter of the book and she landed the ending so perfectly. Uh, you know, it's like when you're watching all these like Olympians mess up on the, on, the, on the gymnastics routine or something and she just, she stuck the landing and I really encourage you to pick up this book after we finish talking. This chair's really squeaky. Um, okay, yeah, that was the, sorry. Did I sell the, did I, did, are you all gonna buy the book? No, did I sell it? Did I sell I feel like I sold it, okay. Okay, so I've had, I feel like I've been dreaming this book ever since I read it. It's been in my head. The characters have been in my head. I want to start with how it happened in your head, which is there's a very strange story of how this book kind of tumbled out of Claudia in 10 days in 2015. You went deaf. How wow. did you go deaf? Okay, so the... She's not deaf anymore, just FYI. 
I'm like temporarily. But deaf, she is though, temporarily deaf on the plane. Like, thematically appropriate. Um, I discovered that I had a disease called autosclerosis, which the smallest bone in the human body. It's um, like the stirrup bone, they call it, because it's stirrup-shaped. And it stopped moving. It's supposed to move like this and much faster than that in your middle ear. And mine had stopped moving. And I was ignoring my disease, essentially. And so I, once I was diagnosed, I found out that it was operable, which was very lucky. So basically they took out my like non-functioning stapes and put in one that worked. And they did that for both of my ears. And the novel um, I wrote when I was recovering from the surgery. Right. Yeah. How did it feel? So you, you, you've been somebody who's been a hearing person and then suddenly it was total deafness, right? Blankness in your mind? No, it wasn't blankness, but it was, I would describe it like like you're talking to me, but between us there's like a fast moving river. Or you're talking to me, but it's like you're in the next room. So I was always apart from people, but I remember the audiologist looking at me once I was diagnosed and saying, you must be exhausted with all that lip reading because you completely adapt, right? So I had, I had completely adjusted to, to life. Um, because I felt strangely secretive and private and probably a great amount of dread about the state until finally my husband said, okay, I was pregnant again and like I really couldn't hear. And so this he is said, happening while you were, your, your body was sacrificing itself to create a human life and also it was like, by the way, I was going to throw in a little bit of temporary <laughs> sort of semi-deafness. Well, this is the irony of this disease is that it really accelerates in your, what they call your childbearing years. So for me, through my pregnancies, it really kicked up. Did you feel the, did you feel disconnected with the kid that was growing inside your body as you were feeling disconnected from all of the other people around no, you? Or did no, it I actually make think it connection was the opposite. opposite. Yeah, I think it was the opposite. It was like, oh, that's its silent, quiet, private chamber I can completely get I can like completely commune with you really and there's nothing embarrassing about it I don't have to ask you to repeat yourself I don't have to get closer I don't have to like strain I don't have to like try to figure out what you're saying you're just giving me all kinds of incredible mysterious things while you're like growing your own nails <laughs> Do you remember some of the things that your kid told you as it was growing its own nails and um, being able to get boners, which is like something I just heard like they, they like as of like four weeks or something or six oh. weeks. It's uh, the, sorry. It's just something that I learned <laughs> recently. And oh I was like, that's so horrible, but it's the terrible miracle of birth, I guess. Um, well, no, because the babies kind of remain strangers to me. I remember moments with both sons where I looked at them and I was like oh you're familiar to me but it took at least a few weeks until then they're kind of like these aliens who are very separate and come from like a secret indescribable place and I always think that they like know everything they have all the cures they have world peace they have like mm -hmm no one would die, no one would go through pain, like just one baby, if one baby could talk, 
they would. But really, all it. they're just seeing is like a mash of like gray. Yeah. Like I wouldn't want them to write a constitution. <laughs> or maybe maybe they'd be great at it. <laughs> if we just got yeah it's true. intervened it's, it's early. Like black and white and gray. But at this point, you had regained your hearing by the time you you had yeah, your kid. Yeah, like like instantaneously. So you have the surgery, and there's some risk to the surgery. You can wake up and it not work. But for me, it worked in both of my ears, and. Um, so I suddenly was a hearing person. So I actually started the novel as a hearing person again. And I'd worn hearing aids for about four years because it had gotten to that point. Um, and then was diagnosed, and then you wait for surgery, as you do, and because everybody needs surgery all the time. And um, so I started the novel when my husband took our kids away for a 10-day stretch, and I was alone in our house, which was like, this strange, luxurious moment. And I want to talk about how that contributed to the architecture of the book because mm-hmm. as, I, as I was reading it, again, there is this, um, the territory is this remote place. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you describe winter in such a stark way. You describe the smells of summer, the way that you can only, they can only bury their dead in the summer because the ground is too frozen in the winter to bury their dead. So suddenly you have this idea of like lingering corpse smell as all the bodies are thawing from the death from the winter and um, because it it takes place in a cult Claudia uh, named her characters cult name so they uh, so there's characters like Supernatural and Sexateria and Hot Dollar and Neon Dean and all these really nice like mouthfeel names that you had Mm -hmm. so uh, this pervading sense of sort of sensuality I kept on applying a mystic quality to you I was like oh the deafness gave her a heightened sense of other things and I wanted to know was that the case? Or? I mean, it's such an interesting question because I feel like I think I've always been a person whose natural state is to be apart. And so the deafness, like, formalized that. It, like, completed that natural state for me. Right. Um, I think a lot of the details in the book actually came from a real experience of mine, which was tree planting. I used to work in lumber camps, and I did that for eight years. I cooked for six I planted for two and we would follow these like hand-drawn logging maps into the bush so we'd be like two and a half hours from the closest very small northern town and we would set up camp and in camp when everyone was there it was kind of wild wild country like it was like its own private society it was like um, pretty sexy actually like sexy dirty all of that And then everyone would leave for the day, and I was cooking for them. So I would spend the day, like, making food for them when they came home, and I would feed them like a mother. And in those hours that I was alone, this was in the 90s, so this is before we had cell phones. And so I felt so apart from my life, so separate from the culture, from the economy. I didn't have a walkie-talkie. I didn't have a truck. I was, like, just a woman in a trailer, you know? So I got this sense of how easily, in a way, I could disappear, which I guess, again, is is maybe related to the deafness, but some feeling of, like, apartness or isolation that, for me, has always held a huge amount of intrigue. Right. 
And I, I think loneliness is one of the mm. pervading themes of the book too. You've got mm. these, these characters who are really struggling to communicate with one another. Mm. No one knows why Billie Jean has left, so that's the mystery and everyone's trying to figure out how to talk about it because she's a woman who came from away into this cult that was pre-existing and then suddenly mm. she leaves. So there's a mystery to her, her having been there in the first place. Mm. And I, and, all, and again, it's all these characters who, because their cult leader is gone too, their guiding principle has, mm -hmm. has disappeared decades ago or, or mm -hmm. how, uh, however many years ago that, mm -hmm. the, um, that the cult leader left. And it's hard enough to express vulnerabilities to one another when you're in the best case scenario. So in this mm -hmm. sort of like difficult case scenario, that there's just a lot of lonely people. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess, why was that top of mind for you as you were writing it? Well, were I you guess, lonely during that time? I mean, are you all? Don't you always, yeah, yeah, you're always have lonely. like some slice yeah, of loneliness, hell, like all lonely, all the time? Yeah, and it's not that is to me not at all terrible. Um, it's familiar, like it's soft, you know. Um, I think I, I, and I can say this now that I've got a few months from finishing it that I could look at it this way, but I think I'm super intrigued by where secrecy and intimacy intersect, right? How close you can be to someone and yet you can hold so much within. There's so much that's unspoken, all these dark corners in you, dark corners of action that you hide, you know? And it's and it's not necessarily oppositional. Like in this in this book, Billie Jean is married to the heavy and they make a vow to each other to never reveal their pasts. And they live like that, like for a decade and a half. You know, they don't tell each other anything about what happened to them before they met. And they both stay true to that promise to each other. Billie Jean never tells her daughter anything about where she came from. She keeps her past entirely buried, you know? So I think I was, in a way, the only relationship that doesn't function that way is the one that Billy has with her dog. You know, her dog is like this confessional and, and, and a guard, like the homicidal yeah. guard, the one who will kill for you. And, and that, in, in, the, in the dog section of the book, which is the second section, and I told you before, I'm like, oh, you write most convincingly as a dog. You should, <laughs> all of your books from here on in should be in the voice of various dogs. But, but because I, I, I think that because there was no, there's no uh, translation going on with the dog. You don't have to. You don't have to lie to the dog. You can just. They're. They're there. They were. They evolved to be our friends. Like yeah. Neil deGrasse Tyson describes the dog as uh, the future of the friendliest because they're the wolves who couldn't get along in the pack, so they had to come and make friends with us. And it's been that way for you know oh, millennia, that's right? Yeah. So they were like, it's why they're man's best friend is because they evolved that way. And. Um, but the just to go back to the loneliness for a second, mm -hmm. I, I love that you say that it's soft. That feels mm -hmm. so comforting. It feels like it's it's nice to think of loneliness as an access point to something that isn't alienating or scary or just mm -hmm. like a yawning expanse of existential, you know, malaise. Mm -hmm. So having examined loneliness a lot in like through this book and then obviously in your life and having put yourself in those situations, what what good things come out of loneliness for you? What clues I can mean, you give I us about the way to, a way to live. Yeah, well, I think I impose it on myself to write, really, actually. It's, like, strategic. Like, I, it's part of how I make the writing happen, yeah. you know? And it's, like, it's also, like, sectioning off loneliness in my head so that I can sustain a conversation with myself, which is what writing is so much of the time. 
because you have to be other in order to observe. You have to be outside of something in order to truly observe it, I think, because if you're taking part in it, then what do you have to say about well, it, really? Well, then you're, like, a social person. Yeah. Then, yeah. yeah. then yeah. you're just having a great time like, all the time, and who wants to hear stories I mean, about people having great times? Like it's, it's, yeah, it's such a thin <laughs> approach to life. Do you, find that, do you find that through loneliness there is, like, when you come out the other end, you can form more authentic, more meaningful love relationships with people after a period of loneliness? I mean, I think... Okay, I think I'll answer the long way, which is that, and it's funny, I would never think of it as loneliness, but it's like loneliness is the state that I had to achieve to write the book, and then I wrote the book, and then in writing the book, and a book is all of your most settled and unsettled feelings, right? It comes from a question, it comes from like a commotion inside of you that you need to quiet. So then you complete that and then you get to exit that state. And so in a way, you can kind of look back at like a former way of being and go, oh, okay, like I see, I see, I see how that was. And, and, and it's such a relief to see how that was, past tense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it signifies like a processing mm-hmm. sort of a, mm-hmm. yeah, you kind of put a, put a punctuation yeah, mark on I, it. Yeah, I, I keep thinking about it this way, like that you, like with the, the book, I tried to do the most personal thing in the most fictional way. And, and there, you know, all the nicknames and all of that stuff, like I actually realized I took a lot of the details from those planting camps, like the big trucks and the big dogs and the roads and the like wish for heat and like comfort and scarcity dread and the scarcity yeah exactly yeah and I wanted to write it with scarcity like I wanted the writing to have like this propulsion from sentence to sentence I wanted to have like the spareness of the place which is why the, the when I was feeling nauseous it was because it really felt like when you took some that thing away from that character I was like but now she's gonna she'll die now without that thing and so I want to go into the, so it's a mother-daughter love story, Mm. this book, and so Billie Jean is the mother, Pony Darlene is the daughter, and Billie Jean commits, I think, the highest crime of motherhood, which is at least the way that society perceives it, which is abandoning your child. I was telling Mm. you backstage, I had a friend who was writing a television show for Lifetime, and she wanted the mother to abandon the family at the end, and the network executives were like, no, no, you should just kill her. (laughs) <laughs> like no, no one yeah. wants to see a mother abandon their children they'd much rather just have her dead it's a lot easier to uh, conceive of that and so but what's beautiful about the book is that the people who love Billie Jean the disappeared woman mm. when they are talking about the reasons or postulating as to why she's disappeared no one judges her mm. there's no that fucking bitch I can't believe she left where is she why did she betray me there's mm. just where is she is she okay is she okay mm-hmm. how conscious was that decision to not write their perception of her high crime with any judgment? Gosh, I mean, I don't know if there was, um, if that was intentional. I mean, I think the epigraph for the novel is in love, there is no because. And I think I'm just so attracted to this idea of like how senseless we are made by love. Um, I think that the people closest to her are propelled by that, that kind of senseless love. And um, so they're distraught, they're worried more than they are enraged. Though Pony, the 15-year-old daughter, who's this kind of fast, sure, like, wry storm of a teenager, she's in this, like, frantic conversation with herself all the time that's, like, part fantasy and, like, part outrage. I think she shows some of it. 
Whereas Jenna, it's like just the pain, the pain, the yearning for Billy. Um, I think I was probably more interested in looking at a woman doing bad things um, and then not judging her. Like, I think that that's why Jenna was so important to me, is, like, having this, like, this loyal, beautiful creature who just, like, sees you and, and like, lets you do and go toward your instincts, however disastrous they are, um, and lets you do so without any judgment. And you didn't telegraph this. I just broke the chair. Uh, you didn't <laughs> telegraph this at all. Um, I lost my question because I broke the chair. Thanks. Thank you. Oh, that's great. Oh, man. This is great. This is, this is what happens <laughs> when we're a community and we decide to leave our houses and not be lonely. You know, someone will fix your chair for you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so you clearly have thought about abandoning your own children. She has two sons. <laughs> I say that because you do write it with such gentleness and, and this idea of, of needing to abandon a child maybe to find yourself, be in tune with your, in, become in tune with your instincts once again because I, I'm not a mother but I've seen a lot of my friends who are mothers really have a hard time figuring out how to reacquaint themselves with who they are as an individual and not, not a parent mm -hmm. and how sometimes that never happens and that's what creates a you know a mother-son or mother-daughter codependency up up until adulthood which makes psycho which makes psycho exactly yeah yeah which is a very sexy movie <laughs> um but yeah so I guess I wanted to to ask uh, you know was that something that you were contending with at all um or have contended with well not not abandoning them directly or practically or ever sure. um but in your mind one thing that occurs when you become a mother, which really shocked me, is like a, like unfathomable darkness. And so what happens is while you have this like new, completely crushing love, you have this whole filmic reel alongside you that's like crushingly dark. And um, I realized that when I was pregnant with my first son, and I wrote about this at s in some length for the Paris Review, and what entered the pregnancy alongside him was death. You know, that was the darkness. And you suddenly become acquainted with death. And you're in this glorious state, like you've got thick hair and you're like illuminated. And all the books are like, have like pink covers and the women are in semi-repose on rocking chairs and I was like where is the scythe like where is the black book with like the scythe and like where is the truthful book that can like explain this very like um tense state that I'm in that I'm not supposed to be in that I don't even want to talk about because it seems like I could wreck something you know I felt superstitious about it and I think that that's now I understand why no one no one talked about it. And then I wrote this piece, and then so many people talked to me about it. Her piece was called Mothers as Makers of Death, right? Yeah. Just, you just yeah, put it <laughs> yeah, right out just, there. Yeah. Edward Gorey writes about it. You know, K, mm. K is for Kate, who is killed with an axe. There's that whole alphabet children's book where all of them die 
Um, mm-hmm. Do you remember that book? No. I'm going to get it for you. Okay. It might help. <laughs> Just in a post-mortem kind of, post-mortem kind of way. I think, I think that, was, that was another big thing that I really wanted to look into was this, this side of motherhood that really doesn't get talked about. You know, as much as I wanted to look at a woman who, like, does bad things, like, she cheats and lies and many other things, but she's also totally loyal and mercurial and, like, shy and many other, you know, many other qualities. And it seemed to come out, and with that character, come out of a survival instinct, which Mm -hmm. is that thing that, you know, you, you hope at one point that a woman can cleave into two and and say, I am, of course, I'm a mother to this child and I have a commitment to this child, but mm-hmm. also I am this other person who is removed from, siloed away from the kid as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, w- the Billie Jean character, it seems as though she's doing these bad things because mm-hmm. she needs to violently re-engage with the other, the other person who's the, non, the non-parent. Well, I think that's one of the big questions in the book is whether you can be more than one person in a lifetime. Like my husband thinks that the book is about puberty. In a way, Pony, who's 15, is doing the same thing. Like remember when you're a teenager and you're like leaning into the mirror and you're putting on your like eyeliner and it's, is this the night that's going to change my life? And you're like, you know, trying to essentially like violently separate yourself from the child that you've been for too long. You know, you've become like restless in that case and you want like a new case and is tonight going to be the night where everyone sees me in my new case? Yeah. You know, and the adults are doing the same thing in the book. I don't know that that ends. No, I right? don't. I, I mean, I think that that's why transitions are so hard is because mm-hmm. you're in them, they feel terrible and you sort of know that for the our last breath is a transition into death. Like it never, it mm-hmm. never stops. It's mm-hmm. a cycle. And I, I love actually what Sheila says in her book, Motherhood. She talks about how, you know, a butterfly or a caterpillar doesn't become a butterfly. A caterpillar turns into total mush and then out of the mush comes a butterfly, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I feel is sort of a perfect yeah. examination or, or metaphor for mm-hmm. how horrible it feels to transition into yeah, something new. Yeah, we always new. skip that. Yeah. We skip talking about the mush. Where it was like, we can spiritually yeah. bypass this, right? Like, yeah. we can fast, <laughs> we can, like, FF on the on the radio <laughs> to the next part, which I, which is was going to be my next question. Like, I, I think that... Um, you talk about Pony and that idea of that sort of feral instinct to change quickly into something else, Mm -hmm. I think as an adult, because that never ends, um, the instinct is still there. But I think when we're adults, we are told to divest ourselves of our more animal instincts because they are uncivil or they cause chaos. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I think it's so important to, Mm -hmm. in a a decorous way and in an appropriate way, continue to have a conversation with our animal instincts Mm And the character of Jenna Rollins, the dog, is very much a manifestation of that. And I, I guess I wanted to know, you clearly came into another feral moment in your adulthood that you seem to be expressing mm-hmm. in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, when was that? Can you pinpoint when that was? Well, strangely enough, Jenna the dog began as a cat. Um, there, was, there are these filmmakers, and I was asked to write a piece for an anthology about them. And so I watched a bunch of their short films and their cats figure very prominently and there was like this very kind of like sultry, highly intelligent white cat. And the filmmakers had such intimate um, relationships with their animals and I could see how easy and pure it was, you know? So 
anyway, I knew though, strangely enough, again, it's like the circuitry of my intuition. I don't map out books. I like work from a storm of feeling and then I make sense of it and get cold toward it and take out whatever I can. But um, then I knew that I wanted to do a book that was in three voices, girl, dog, boy. And that I wanted each voice to be like a room, like a room that you enter and then exit. And then you enter the next room and there's Jenna. And then you exit that one and you enter the last room. There's Supernatural. You know, I, I used to write for theater. So I thought of it in these like these sections where a light would come up and a person is there. And then the light would go down. You go to the next place, you know. So I knew it was a dog. So I essentially turned the filmmaker's cat into a dog but the dog was kind of torment to write because the dog of course is the archivist like where the humans won't talk to each other the dog knows everything right and so she's the one who holds all that all that darkness that they've been through and withhold from each other all right it makes me want to go back to what you were saying before about the idea of not sharing uh a history with the person who you decide to be a part in a partnership with. Do you think outside of the territory, the the the, the frozen tundra that you created in your mm -hmm. book, does that work in real life? Do you think keeping that keeping that magnitude of a secret because these two characters have so much the heavy and Billy Jean have so much pain and trauma, um, like coded within their DNA that they don't talk about, and mm -hmm. it works in the book because it's. It's beautiful. It's poetic. It's it's withholding, and there's secrecy, intimacy. That what you just talked about. What do you think that works in real life? Well, and I think their secrecy, intimacy is that they're protecting each other. Like I actually think, in a way, it's like it's like merciful. In real life, I mean, I don't know. I can't imagine like being so secretive. Um, I I think it could work though. Oh. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. But I think you'd have a very compromised marriage. You'd have to have an enormous amount of faith, I think, in the other you'd person. You'd have to have a really big dog. Too. You'd have to have a big mur have have like murderous a, dog. It's the never, only. You'd yeah. have to have Cujo. Yeah. 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 That's okay. There's like there's genetic like um you know CRISPR that gene editing uh it's a gene editing thing uh, technology so we can just make like really muscular like beagles and stuff yeah, now so totally. it'll be easier to get more. You know Cujos. your friends who are married who have a lot of secrets from each other have a giant beagle. That's how you. Know. Yeah. <laughs> it's a huge yeah. like bodybuilding yeah. like eighties t shirt like Coors yeah. drinking beagle. Um, <laughs> how how much leeway do you think we get as people to act on our animal instincts? Too little. Like, and what, or what counts as going too far, do you think? I mean, murder. Murder. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. That's wrong. Anything before murder? <laughs> it's just murder. If it's just murder, I feel like that's a, I we mean, have a lot of. I mean, crimes, I guess. But, um, no, I feel like those parts of ourselves are, like, so, we've, we're so civilized. Especially now with phones. It's like we're all curved over these slot machines. You know, it's so different now. Which is not civility. It's a. It's just. A, it's, it's a. It's a removal. I mean, talk about loneliness. Yeah. It's the loneliest thing. It is. I think. Well, it's like the difference between I think loneliness and solitude. Like mm -hmm. I think that. I think there's a difference between lo loneliness and solitude, and I don't know what that is. Mm -hmm. But I'm asking the question, so I guess. You're and you brought it up, so you should try yeah. to answer. Okay. So the difference between loneliness and solitude. Um, such a dick move. <laughs> <laughs> such a dick move. Um, no, I, I just, I, I couldn't write a book set now 
essentially because of phones, because of how phones are changing the way we're thinking and feeling, and I didn't want them to enter my writing. Like, I needed a break from them. And I also thought it would be difficult to tell the story of a woman who's vanished with such intrusive technology. Yeah. I wanted simpler technology. Yeah. And then also to wit human contact. I mean, look at the way we're looking at each other. It feels nice. It's great. Yeah. It's I don't like it when you look at them. I feel like you're betraying <laughs> me. <laughs> um, I feel like I feel like we're coming up on the I have two more okay. questions to ask you. Okay. And I feel like just going back to the animal instinct question, something that I personally struggle with is um, fight or flight. And it's like I was telling you before, every time I go back to Toronto, because we're both from Toronto, I, I see sort of the evolution of my married friends. And some of them I'm like, all right, you're going through a hard time, but you're going to be fine. You still know how to talk to one another. Mm-hmm. With one, this one particular couple, I'm just like, cut your losses, like get out, mm-hmm. just you know, sunk cost fallacy. Who cares? The $1.2 million house, get rid of it. You'll figure out the divorce, like mm-hmm. stop it. Mm-hmm. But you know, there's people believe themselves to be cowards if they quit. People uh, believe themselves to be foolish if they stay in the fight forever. So after having written this very sort of instinctual book, did you get any extra information about when to, f- when to stay and when to go when things get bad or complicated? Um, oh, gosh, that's such a deep question. Just answer it. I mean... <laughs> Just try. Um... Well, my marriage is a stay, so that's good. Motherhood is a stay, so that's also good. Um, And then I think think actually what this comes down to is women forcing themselves to be pleasing and being kind to people who aren't good to them out of like some ancient badly wired compulsion. Yeah, exactly. Um, <clears throat> so I think I wanted to be inside the mind and body of a woman who did not play that game. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know, do you know whether you should stay or go right now? Mm-hmm. For example, would you like to go and sign books? Oh, I would love to. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Thanks so much, Claudia. Uh, it's a great book. It's just, um, it's the best. It's a really, really, really exciting book. And I had to prevent myself from crying like many times as I was writing out these questions, thinking about my own relationship yeah. with my mom. And uh, I'm really happy I kept it together on stage because I was like, wow. I might burst into tears. And I wanted you to burst into tears. But no, I'm going to cry now. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> good. Thanks so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.